my name is Michael Bryant, author of Mere Addiction and 28 Seconds, and you're listening to Rebellion Dogs Radio. Welcome to Rebellion Dogs Radio, a contemporary look at addiction, recovery, and mental health. Now with less dogma and more bite. This is episode 41. Is there a shift in people's attitudes about addiction and mental health? I sense a healthy move from lip service accountability about mental health and substance use disorder to a growing sense of compassion and duty for our fellows. This uh, altering zeitgeist is going to be the theme for this radio episode. And it features two great guests. We will hear today from people taking a stand, putting themselves out there, helping end the stigma and the systemic discrimination that comes with stigma. We meet Lucy, our rock and roller by night, treatment counselor by day. Michael is a lawyer. He represents those with untreated addiction and mental health in many cases people who find themselves in the crosshairs of Canada's criminal justice system. Given that addiction and recovery remains an enigma to most lawyers and judges, Michael Bryant writes, there's a tendency to randomly embrace or reject any submission or point. This discomfort with the subject is high. Eggshells everywhere. In the book Mere Addiction, Michael J. Bryant offers an insider's candid commentary about how abstinence bail conditions are a setup for failure and recidivism, leading many addicts and alcoholics to battle the stacked odds of overcoming addiction without any support system. Another senior lawyer I know in recovery refers to making drinking a violation of an alcoholic's bail or parole is the criminal justice system's own means of manufacturing crime. I remember when the clothing industry was called out for planned obsolescence. Thread that made our clothing was bleached before sewing. It weakened our crotches, knees, and cuffs. Premature wear translated into repeat customers. The auto industry was accused of selling vehicles at cost because the profit was in the planned obsolescence of the mufflers, transmission, shock absorbers, and other parts that they could make a handsome margin on in the aftermarket for a car-dependent population. Are courts or the criminal justice system guilty of their own uh, willful blindness? Is that too strong when they set a person up with either mental health or substance use disorder with conditions that will be predictably broken. It's a ticklish job they have to navigate these things. We'll hear directly from Michael Bryant soon. And from Lucy DeSantos, lead singer of Acid Test, a 1990s band. They were signed to Sire, then Warner Records. That band's hiatus uh, in the later 90s was caused in part to addiction suffered directly by two of the band members. Of course, half a band can't suffer from addiction. The whole band suffers. Just like a member of a family doesn't suffer from addiction, the whole family suffers. In the case of acid test, substance use disorder or disorders, one path led to recovery, the other premature death. The 2012 loss of bandmate Mike Harland a.k.a. DJ Just Right, brought acid test survivors together, and eventually the seed was planted for a new record dedicated to their late colleague. Before our interview with Michael and Lucy, um, here's a news peg du jour, and it speaks about uh, what I perceive as a shifting consciousness about mental health awareness. In June, after the shocking suicides of one TV and one fashion celebrity, Cisco CEO Chuck Robbins emailed all employees about the matter of mental health awareness, mental wellness, and coping with uh, our personal issues. 
Here's how it was reported by Christina Farr for CNBC. In light of recent tragedies, I wanted to step away from Cisco Live for a moment to talk about the importance of mental health, he wrote. Unfortunately, we all know friends, family, and co-workers battling mental health conditions, or maybe you're going through your own struggles. Robbins, who took over the CEO role in 2015, encouraged employees to talk openly and extend compassion, asked that they have each other's back, and told them that professional support is available. Robbins had no idea what was about to happen. More than 100 employees responded to his note within days. Some shared painful details of their own personal struggles. I didn't understand the magnitude of the problem, Robbins told CNBC in an interview. The volume of responses we got back led us to be more active. Roughly one in five adults in the U.S. each year suffer from mental illness, according to the National Alliance of Mental Illness. The cost to treat depression, stress, anxiety, and other ailments exceeds $200 billion a year. And for many employers, the number of sick days and lost productivity associated with mental health represents one of their biggest expenses. But relative to physical sickness, there remains a stigma in publicly addressing behavioral health. Insurers and corporations have been slow to recognize the importance, and many qualified health professionals, including psychologists and psychiatrists, don't accept insurance. Large employers across the country are just beginning to prioritize it through their benefit programs as part of a broader focus on employee wellness. Technology companies in particular are adopting uh, a new health program as another way to attract and retain talent in a hyper-competitive market for engineers. So, that's in the news. First, Cisco is talking about mental health awareness and help reduce the stigma, and now CNBC is talking about it too. The article goes on to explain Cisco's new 724 access to counseling. Uh, they offer meditation, uh, paid leave, yoga, etc. So a CEO says enough is enough. We won't stand idly by or figuratively keep our head in the sands and pretend that they can will or hope the financial and productivity costs of mental health problems away. Cisco makes it okay to speak up, say, I have a problem, or I think I might have a problem. Who can I turn to for help? I think he sees it as adding shareholder value, not dragging costs on the company's operations. I found myself swept up in this same, if you see something, say something, new attitude just this month. I have a modest profile in the North American music scene, but a voice nevertheless. Unless someone is blatantly reaching out for help, I'm kind of discreet about living in long-term recovery. It's the music business. It's a party. A lot of sponsors that pay the artists are booze companies. Before we know it, cannabis retailers will be sponsoring pop music tours. So why would I want to be a buzzkill? Why would I brag about my sobriety? Well, the answer is that the music industry isn't spared from tragic premature deaths due to alcohol and other substance and process addictions. It's one of few professions where you can drink on the job and it's not looked down upon. Just like Cisco's leadership saw something and said something, Indie Week, an annual music festival and music business conference, added a health and wellness day to its Indie 101 conference schedule. So what could I do? I asked, hey, uh, do you think attendees would be receptive to hearing from professional musicians I know who are now negotiating a clean and sober path in the music scene. Well, they said yes. So I was moderating a panel 
Rob Laidlaw plays bass guitar for 80s uh, top 40 touring pop and rock acts. There's a band called Toronto, Kim Mitchell, several others. He's a journeyman bassist. He also produces and writes songs, sometimes with today's emerging artists. Lucy DeSanto, previously mentioned with Acetest, is an addiction treatment counselor who I volunteer with at the Bellwood Health Services uh, Center in Toronto for one of her Wednesday morning aftercare sessions. I get a lot out of that. I don't go there to spew my wisdom. I go there to learn. And I, I share, but, you know, I'm just one of the group. As it turns out, the panel date for the wellness day got moved, which conflicted with acid tests fall tour which included a Saturday night show at Indie Week. So Lucy and I, Lucy couldn't make the wellness panel. Lucy and I made a short video together for Indie Week delegates, and it was posted on YouTube. That left Rob and me to hold court with Indie Week attendees. The panel was called Second Chances, Recovery Over Drugs and Rock and Roll. Rob shared his life experience how snorting lines with his band's first record label executive was not an unusual business practice in the 80s and 90s. But the sex, drugs, and rock and roll became too much. Rob sought out help. He found himself sucking back a few drinks at the airport bar before a flight, and he was quite embarrassed that his bandmates didn't concur that midday shots was the way we fly. Now, Rob thought that getting sober meant that's it for the music business. How could he live the life and stay sober? It didn't seem possible, but he found a way. He got through the first awkward stages, on stage, backstage, as being a straight edge while the party raged around him. We'll share Lucy's story later, which I pre-recorded for IndyCan Radio. At the Indie Week conference, I disclosed that, you know, Indie Can Radio wasn't my only broadcasting gig to which I draw upon lived experience. Music isn't my only form of journalism. There is a reason that, while invited, they don't see me at music showcase after parties. I can prepare for and cope with people getting high and tipsy around me when we're all there for the music because I've climatized myself to being comfortable around music regardless of where it's being performed. When there's free beer tickets, I give them away. When the music's over and it's more about the booze and drugs, I don't want or need that, so I go home. Now for our interviews. Uh, early this year, the CBC radio and website ran a piece called What Happened to Michael Bryant? As a prominent member of the Liberal Provincial Government earlier this millennium, Michael was Ontario's youngest ever Attorney General. Thought by some to be a future leader of the Liberal Party, he was a regular fixture with lights, cameras in his face, to which those news stories would frequent RTVs and newspapers. The book 28 Seconds, A True Story of Addiction, Tragedy, and Hope. It talks about two worlds colliding. Darcy Allen Shepard, he's Aboriginal, adopted, bike courier, 33 years old, 200 plus pounds, history of drug and alcohol, use, mental health issues known to the police. He's on his bicycle on a 2009 evening in stop-and-go downtown traffic. Some witnesses reported he was raging and drunk and disorderly before the encounter. Michael J. Bryant. At the time, he presided over 500,000 criminal cases a year. To heighten where his possible career track might have gone before this evening, a personal friend, his uh, wife was an entertainment lawyer, was record executive Bernie Finkelstein of True North Records, and he was often known to refer to Michael as being of potential future Canadian Prime Minister material. Michael and his wife were in a convertible sob on their way home 
from an anniversary dinner. The fateful 28 seconds included a verbal altercation, Shepard on Bryant's hood of the car, Shepard would fall off the car and be injured, Michael would call the incident in to 911, he would be swiftly criminally charged because injury suffered by Shepard caused his death. A good deal of time later, those charges would be dropped. It was controversial, very public, very polarizing. It was a media heyday. So Shepard dies from the injuries that night, and Bryant's life also is fatefully changed forever. After the charges were dismissed, he writes 28 seconds and disappears from public life. I love the book. Uh, we live in a big city. It's even a big city recovery community. I knew of him, but only really exchanged pleasantries on our uh, Goodreads uh, profiles together. When I heard about Mere Addiction, his brand new book, I heard about it from my son who's in law school. I read it. I couldn't wait to talk to Michael about this book. And very excited to share it with you. So here we go. From Michael's modest office, where he's executive director and general counsel for the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. Thanks, and thanks for having me on. And I'm a big fan of Rebellion Dogs Radio and obviously of your work. Inviting me on here is a real treat for me. Uh, I um, born and raised in the West Coast. Early on, uh, figured out or thought I figured out that the uh, blueprint to life was to climb the ladder of success and to get my way and to um, rack up stuff that um, filled my ego just right. And so I did that. Um, it got elected, uh, went to Harvard, clerked uh, to the Supreme Court, got married, kids, house, and along the way drank like an alcoholic. I think mm -hmm. I was born this way. There's nothing about uh, my background that... Um, uh, cause this, I just am. Um, and uh, I, although I was high functioning in some ways, in many ways, I was very low functioning and I was very dependent on other people to uh, cover up for me and enable me and help me out. At some point, uh, I figured out that uh, I couldn't live without this stuff. Um, at some point, I realized that I was obsessed with supply and that I had an addiction uh, in the sense of uh, uh, a disease that. Um, was an obsession of the mind and, and, and an allergy because if I had one, I'd have a lot. And although I had a big job, I was in politics in Ontario, like other uh, addicts and alcoholics, ingeniously uh, applied all of the worst skills possible to manipulate um, the thing that was most important to me, uh, which was, for me, my drug of choice, which is alcohol. I mean, there's nothing more important to me than that. If you had asked me, I would have said my kids are the most important thing mm -hmm. and my constituents are the most important <laughs> thing, but put, uh, put them in the way of me and a drink, and I'd always mm -hmm. opt for the drink. Mm -hmm. So uh, I went through the... Uh, I tried a whole bunch of different things to try and figure out how to drink in moderation. Um, I tried everything. The... First thing uh, to work was a 12-step program, but the you know the last day of my drinking was in March of 2006, and I don't know why that was the last day. I can't really explain it. It just was, and uh, I don't know how I strung together sobriety. Um, uh, I did, and I talk about it in 28 seconds mm -hmm. and uh, reference 12-step program, but the. I didn't really get the gift of desperation until a very tragic um, moment in my life. And uh, a man died. His name is Darcy Allen Shepard. Uh, it's not for me to eulogize him, but he was loved by many people. Uh, I was charged in his death. And when I uh, got out of the police, when I got released on bail by the police, um, the first place I went to was a 12-step meeting. Mm -hmm. And I immediately identified with a bunch of people in that room. Uh, I thought it was a miracle that half the room had, had also been to jail. Uh, <laughs> with some experience, I realized that 12-step uh, rooms, in fact, are it's not that unusual. Uh, I really didn't recognize myself. I just I was unrecognizable to myself because I'd been all about success. And I could see that at least for the foreseeable future, my life was going to be just about defending the charges. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know how to live because there was no ladder to climb. And um, 
So I took on the program of recovery, and that program of recovery gave me a blueprint, and I followed that blueprint, and as a result of that, uh, amongst other things, I didn't relapse Mm -hmm. um, during that period, uh, nor when my marriage ended about a year later, nor when tragedy struck again about a year later when my brother passed away. Mm -hmm. And all that I talk about in 28 seconds. Mm -hmm. I ended up uh, in some ways going down the ladder after that to find out what I was going to do next in my life uh, thanks to uh, uh, a social justice and homeless community called Sanctuary. Um, I was welcomed into a group of people I didn't deserve to be welcome uh, Mm -hmm. to, uh, but that was the point. Mm -hmm. Uh, They lived the teaching that um, you uh, you love your enemies. They live that teaching, yeah. and they very reluctantly befriended me, but uh, they befriended me, and I changed as a result of that. I, I got to see that um, I got to see myself in in many of my new friends. Long story short, ended up doing uh, criminal defense work for um, addicts and indigenous people as like a public defender, kind of at the bottom of the totem pole of um, of the system, uh, of the criminal justice system, having been at the top of the system. That's right. I mean, you were attorney general. For, right. You were the top legal person in Ontario, and now you're working as a public defender or right. doing duty counsel. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I, so it was right down to the mailroom. I think that's brilliant. When we think of the upside down uh, yeah. triangle, you've right. found your way to the top. That's right. <laughs> well, and, and you're right. And I and then saw, of course, that the, that it turns out that ladder is a is not is a terrible metaphor. Yeah. Uh, that it's only in the material world that mm-hmm. people are above you or below you. Yeah. After doing that for um, a few years, uh, this opportunity at the Canadian Civil Liberties Association came along. Uh, I continue to do some pro bono criminal work, mm-hmm. uh, but I also work on these issues around the criminal justice system, equality, free speech, and privacy uh, through the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, which is older even than me. Very feel very lucky to be here and, and to be doing that kind of work. Uh, somewhere along the line, judges and justices of the peace and lawyers and other professionals re- would reach out to me to come and share my story for them because they're dealing with people who are in the throes of addiction or or maybe in recovery, but they still have the ism, the uh, alcoholism or the um, addiction uh, characteristics. Uh, and I would share that information with them and... Uh, that became the genesis of the book that I wrote. Uh, and the book starts out with uh, Bonzo uh, yeah. wanting bail, right? Right. right. You know, I, I'm sure a pseudonym. Yes, yeah. that's right. Uh, and uh, everyone knows there is microaggression and there is stigmatization with the addicts and alcoholics. Even in the treatment of addicts and alcoholics, we're trying to change the language right. just so people treat them right. Uh, right. Know, equal to any other ailment. Right. Uh, but in the criminal justice system, it's years behind that, right. isn't it? That's right. Okay. Yeah. We will look 50 years from now, look back at yes. the way we treated addiction criminally and, and, and yeah. be ashamed of ourselves. I think you're right. Yeah, I think I you're hope right. so, anyway. Yeah. So, okay, so so that's the background, and you, there you are with uh, Bonzo. Right. <laughs> yeah, so uh, mere addiction is, um, you know, it's funny, a few people, it's interesting to me, a few people, they read the book, and then what they tell me, they start mm-hmm. telling me about, uh, they're not alcoholics or addicts, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and that's fine, because that's really who they're book was written for, although mm-hmm. there's plenty there for uh, people like uh, me, um, who, who is in recovery. Uh, but uh, they'll start talking about how they drink too much. Yeah. Uh, so mm-hmm. they, <laughs> they they turn it into a, a wellness thing, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and yeah, sure, I hope that they exercise more and eat better and uh, I don't know, whatever, if they want to cut their wine consumption down a little bit. But that's not the point of the book. The point of the book is... Um, how do we manage this in our lives, mm-hmm. uh, the addict and the alcoholic, and and the justice system in particular, using this example of this uh, client, Bonzo, that I had, mm-hmm. who I knew for all of uh, 30 seconds before I had to start trying to get him a bail hearing. Yeah. He looked and smelled uh, like an alcoholic. By the look of his record, he had the kind of offenses... Uh, that an addict would have, you know, beyond drinking and driving, that's the obvious one, a lot of mischief, um, Mm -hmm. assault, Mm -hmm. um, assault with a weapon, which, you know, turns out to be a spatula. I mean, on the, on the, on the record, it sort of looks like a long criminal record, but really 
this this guy was just a train wreck. That's all mm-hmm. he was. He was yeah. just a mess. And the thing that was confounding to the court was, you know, why do you keep doing this behavior? Why do you keep doing this stuff? You know, I think you've got a drinking problem. The justice of the peace says, so just stop drinking. So yeah. he, he wanted to bring in abstinence uh, condition mm-hmm. into uh, his release on bail. Mm-hmm. This confounded justice of the peace who was dealing with Bonzo. Uh, the book was really to address that. Right. And, and, you know, the answer was, look, the thing that is at the heart of all of his uh, criminal legal problems is alcohol in, in his case. And so um, uh, getting him to see that mm-hmm. by way of giving him a consequence that shows him that his life is unmanageable, combined with a, a point in the right direction. Mm-hmm. And, and forcing abstinence is not a point in the right direction. That's actually just going to make him breach the bail hearing, and sorry, the bail terms, and then he's going to be back in jail. Instead, you know, my humble suggestion was, and I said to this guy, are you willing to do it? Uh, will you go to, uh, in this particular jurisdiction, the Peel um, Addiction uh, and Mental Illness, basically triage center, mm-hmm. and just go and talk to somebody, and maybe that'll be day one, mm-hmm. uh, and maybe as a result he'll go to a meeting, or maybe he'll get a counselor, or maybe he'll find his way to a program of recovery. That's way better, I thought, mm-hmm. than the alternative. And, uh, you know, it used to be that bail terms or probation terms included going to 12-step meetings. It's much, much less common today. Mm -hmm. You know, we can get into that in a minute, but part of that is uh, um, because uh, of judges and justices of peace and legal professionals and managers trying to get their head around the difference between abstinence-based treatment and harm reduction. Mm -hmm. Uh, In Canada, we've got this um, dichotomy between harm reduction on the one hand and abstinence-based treatment on the other hand. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in the book, I I say, in essence, they can can all work together. It's not one or the other. You, You can just put it on a on a line and uh, make it part of their journey or their path, uh, not see it as one is uh, the only way to go and the other is not the only way to go. You do mention that you feel like harm reduction, as this is all we do, kind of gives up on yes. the yeah. Uh, addict, yeah. uh, the well, sufferer of substance use disorder. Right. Sorry. I mean, on that front, and you know, I don't know, I really don't know. Yeah. Like, I, I don't pretend, and I hope this comes across in the book, that I don't have uh, the answers to this, but I have some friends who are in recovery who used to live on the streets, Mm -hmm. and some, you know, weren't living on and off the streets. They were, you know, one of them was on a grate for 10 years uh, down at King and Bay, and, you know, now he's got 15 years of sobriety and a job and a life, and now he, he gets help with a psychiatrist and some medication, but people who live on the streets can't get better. My experience in the homeless community, however, limited experience, is that that 12 steps not realistic for them. That right. stringing together sobriety isn't realistic and, mm-hmm. it, and it's um, wrong to set them up for failure. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I, I, I don't know what the answer to that is. You know, I just know that some, got, some men and women do get better. Yeah. And I understand that some don't. Yeah. Uh, so in that sense, for that community, harm reduction feels like palliative care for me. Mm-hmm. It feels mm-hmm. like you're, you're helping people um, be comfortable on their way to a premature death. Right. And it's compassionate, but it means that, you know, we've given up on the idea that this person is going to ever be happy, joyous, and free. Right. Maybe, maybe that's true. Maybe that is the better way. Um, certainly demonizing harm reduction mm-hmm. makes no sense to me. Mm-hmm. And criminalizing it makes no sense to me. But similarly, giving up makes no sense. It makes no sense to me. It does. Right. right. You know, those are my thoughts on on all that. That you know, I I just can't emphasize it enough. Uh, yes, as a strategy to save lives, obviously harm reduction is uh, something that makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, my understanding is is that uh, harm reduction for uh, addiction uh, grew out of the success story that arose from the public health response to uh, HIV AIDS harm mm-hmm. reduction. Mm-hmm. But I think those are two very different That's circumstances, right. Yeah. right? One involved the immutable characteristic mm-hmm. of an individual and harm reduction was a way to prevent the spread of that communicable disease. Yeah. 
and the other is not about just that, although mm-hmm. it's about that mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. Uh, I suppose the other way to look at it is at the same time as harm reduction existed for HIV AIDS, mm-hmm. there's also uh, plenty of research going into treating and even maybe even preventing and curing mm-hmm. HIV AIDS. Right. Uh, so I, I want us to uh, have harm reduction um, for the alcoholic addict, but also um, continue that effort to try and uh, treat and potentially, uh, I don't think it's a disease that you can cure, uh, alcoholism and, and addiction, but I think that uh, um, there is a, the, the cure, if you like, can be found in the form of recovery. So at least there can be a cure for a day. Now, I don't know if you see it this way, but I see your story, and mm-hmm. this goes back to 28 seconds, mm-hmm. as a harm reduction success story. Yeah, it's true. Because your, uh, your psychiatrist yeah. used uh, motivational yes. enhanced yes. interviewing with right. you and, and asked you what you wanted to do, right? and, and you chose your own harm reduction, right? Yeah, I've, I, you're absolutely right, Joe. You're absolutely right. I mean, it, I, I think it, it might have been under the category of managed drinking, mm-hmm. right? So managed mm-hmm. consumption. Yeah, moderation. Yeah, moder- moderation management, I think, sure, goes under the umbrella of yeah. harm reduction, yeah. for sure. And I know so many people who are in recovery and abstinence today mm-hmm. who uh, only ended up there because they tried... Uh, harm reduction, and they yeah. tried uh, moderation management, and it didn't work for them. Yeah, and and that is a hundred percent my story. This particular psychiatrist didn't call it anything. He just said, "Okay, why don't we do this? You keep a journal of your drinking, try to keep it down to." And he got me to set the limit. Yeah, and what I found as I as I tried to stay to the limit was that I couldn't keep to it. So this thing that I thought I could do, and I told myself I was doing, eventually. I saw I, that I wasn't doing and that mm-hmm. I couldn't do it and that I couldn't manage it. It was really the linchpin to my seeing that I was powerless over alcohol. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I, I, because I had to try. You know, some people talk about hitting a bottom. That, well, that certainly was hitting a bottom for me. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure there's any one holy grail of a bottom for mm-hmm. each person. Mm-hmm. And I've had different ones. But uh, that was very important and part of the continuum. And that's what, um, uh, you know, the current leader of the Canadian Mental Health and Addiction, uh, mm-hmm. um, uh, who used to be the head of Renaissance. Right. Uh, he uh, is an American. He says the same thing. In the United States, harm reduction is like on a continuum and abstinence yeah. is there somewhere. I think that that's what we should do in Canada and that's what they do in Europe as well. Instead of, it, it, what's happened is it's become polarized and... Um, uh, politicized, right, and that's yes, the, the fault of the big problem, right, and that's the fault of uh, one particular party uh, mm-hmm. because they uh, made they really demonized harm reduction, and mm-hmm. so as a result of that, the opposing political parties mm-hmm. uh, embraced harm reduction. Right. So now we have a situation where we've got the government who's embraced harm reduction for ideological reasons. I don't know if it's fair to say the current federal government opposes abstinence-based treatment, but it's not their focus. No. I mean, they couldn't have done that and legalize cannabis. Right. <laughs> right. That's, that's, In the same agenda. Yeah, that's right. That's As right. Uh, doctors who lobbied them say, they told us they would listen, and they listened to yeah. us and ignored us. <laughs> right, right. And uh, many are predicting a, a serious public health problem. But, you know, uh, prohibition didn't no, help solve that's right. the that's addiction right. to alcohol no. either. So no. the system we had wasn't working. Yeah. And the the solution for it isn't really a solution. But right. right. We'll see what happens yeah, next. Yeah, we will. Right? That ship has sailed. Yeah. And so we're going to see what happens. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there is a real opportunity that could arise from this because it's in the government's interest to avoid adverse public health effects and so I'm sure I'm pretty confident that they're going to make the eventually going to have to make the relevant investments in it to tackle it and uh, but we'll see. Can you see a way that instead of setting uh, people up for failure and I've seen this from the inside people looking at trying to get early release Mm -hmm. and knowing their early release will be uh, based on total zero tolerance for alcohol mm-hmm. and thinking I, I shouldn't even ask for it because what am I going to do when I get out? Right. It's right. all I know. Right. That's right. That's right. right. Yeah. What's the solution to that? You can't mandate 
treatment, no. or can you? No. And, and what's the best way to sort of give them the tools they need if they really want to succeed at, you know, right living? I, I think, you know, we start with a set of principles. The first one is that mandatory abstinence doesn't work, mm -hmm. so we're setting them up for failure. Mm -hmm. uh, we, why we wouldn't offer recovery meetings in every single prison and jail mm -hmm. in Canada is beyond me. I just don't understand. you got a group of people who are willing to provide the service, if you like, for free, mm -hmm. who are willing to show up, as I have at, mm -hmm. um, at uh, provincial correctional institutions, uh, and just have one every single night. So at least there's, for those who are in detention, they have the opportunity to listen and hear, and maybe the seed gets planted. Yeah. So I think the system can plant seeds all over the place. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the other way to do it is make it a term of probation and or or bail that they uh, attend at some uh, medical uh, treatment center, which will allow them to potentially be diagnosed for addiction or mm -hmm. alcoholism. Uh, so it's more creating some opportunities by planting some seeds. I, I, I don't think that the criminal legal system actually can effectively uh, make the change because the individual has to make the change. Right. So uh, it, it is more about how do we create incentives and disincentives for the person making the change. Right. Knowing that it is a disease. So mm -hmm. don't make one of those incentives or disincentives turn on the person's ability to stay abstinent mm -hmm. because you're, you're it's like um, you know asking a diabetic yeah. to to have uh, the uh, um, blood sugar level that's that's normal. You just you can't, it, you just can't. Yeah, that's right. A and the person in the box is going to say yes, I'll do it. Yeah, you're they're right. going to agree. <clears throat> that's and right. They're going to believe they will. Yeah, but, that's right. But we know yeah. that that's just not realistic. Right. Uh, the bail term that I saw more frequently was a requirement that the person not uh, drink in public. So you could mm -hmm. you could drink at home, but you couldn't drink in public. Well, again, the way the disease works is somebody has one drink at home and then they wake up <laughs> yeah. a mile away from yeah. home yeah, uh, drinking right. somewhere. Yeah. Uh, and because they don't really have any control over what happens after they take that first yeah. drink. So even that is setting them up to failure. Yeah. To which they say, well, we have to create some accountability. Yeah. Uh, and um, and my answer to that is actually is, no, you don't. Uh, it's bail. Uh, yeah. Bail is um, this absurd crystal ball exercise where they're engaging in risk management mm -hmm. and trying to reduce the risk. Um, well, you can reduce the risk in a, mon a number of different ways, but you can't reduce the risk of a relapse. Mm -hmm. All you can do is point them in the direction of recovery. That's all you can do. Yeah. And that's it. Yeah, and that's the, the sort of humanist way of doing yes. it, right? Right, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Do you have a copy of your book handy? I yeah. think I do. There's yeah, one I do. thing I, I want you to read uh, in your appendix. Oh, fun. Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, I really think you hit a home run there. It was oh, a thanks. Oh, that's Joe great. Carter moment. <laughs> yeah, oh, good. <laughs> Yeah, just from non-alcoholics. So this chapter is is the one directed to uh, someone who is um, worried that they have a substance abuse issue, however we want to put it. So the independ the appendix title is, Do I Have a Drinking Problem? Non-alcoholics don't fuss about when the next drink will arrive. I used to shoot daggers from my eyes in the direction of recalcitrant waiters and bartenders. I took it very personally when my drink was delayed. I thought quite a lot about my next drink. I knew where to get my supply and was more organized about keeping my supply up than I was about just about anything. I could be late filing my taxes or returning phone calls, but never to the liquor store. I was late to every meeting, but cocktail hour was rarely delayed without a conscious reward of extra booze at day's end. I could be late getting home to tuck in the kids, but incredibly punctual when it came to refilling my glass. I spent so much of my life anxious about when the next ounce of booze was to arrive. For most of my life, I was oblivious to this mental obsession with booze. Once revealed, I felt shitty about it, followed soon by shame, then melodramatic pity, and by dawn, a sincere profession to cease and desist. And then I'd start the cycle all over again, by sundown. It was the insanity of addiction. 
That's it. Yeah, that is gripping. Uh, how can people get a hold of the book now? Uh, easiest ways to go on Amazon. Uh, the Kindle edition is available. The uh, paperback version is also available off of Amazon. It will yeah. direct you over to J. Charlton Publishing, mm -hmm. uh, a British Columbia-based publisher. And um, if you... Uh, uh, if you search up the name of my book, Amir Addiction, uh, and Charlton, I guess that'd be the other way to find it. But uh, I've been, I've just been pointing people to Amazon, and you'll eventually get onto that person's website. I'm just very grateful for your radio show, for your podcast, and for all that you're doing for um, all of us out there. There's a lot of uh, Me Too books, not hashtag Me Too. Right. You know, just, just yes, the other I ones, know, right? I know. And and I really think this yeah. was one that was uh, a hole in the. Uh picture good I, I think you nailed it I, I think more books will be written like this which will be great yeah hopefully we can get somewhere with it so thanks for spending some yeah. time with us no thanks very much thanks for doing this and uh, uh, look forward to uh, following your stuff and following your radio show and um, and seeing where this uh, takes us I'm a match she kerosene you know she gonna burn down everything she an arsonist in a pastime That is the Interrupters, She's Kerosene. They're touring the UK for the balance of 2018. They're all over the USA in 2019. Of course, I recommend both or either Michael Bryant book. Mere Addiction is a contemporary look of what's going on inside the criminal justice system. It's written by an insider. And even if you have little interest in the legal process, the human interest stories, and Michael's candor, well, they got under my skin, they got into my head, maybe you'll have the same experience. On the topic of law, the justice system, and AA, let's say, let me give you a preview of an upcoming Rebellion Dogs radio show.
maybe even next time, episode 42. And I say maybe because there's other authors I'm still uh, looking forward to interviewing. And then as soon as I interview them, well, I'm going to want to share those conversations with you as well. Anyway, so I don't know quite how it'll come down. But you know, if you listened to last episode or last read last blog, I was in Houston in October for the NADAC, that's the Association of Addiction Professionals, annual conference. Last show, I brought you highlights of the conference from other presenters, but I didn't go into details about why I was there. I did a workshop called No God, No Problem, Accommodating a Growing Appetite for Secular 12-Step Facilitation. The gist of the presentation is this is a better time than ever for those who want recovery without it being packaged with a supernatural support system or prayer or God talk or whatever the objection is, either within AA or via a growing list of peer-to-peer secular recovery networks. I'm an atheist. I don't want to be told to turn my will and my life over to God isn't a get-out-of-recovery-free card anymore. However, some of the uh, treatment centers and criminal justice corrections world, they haven't all kept up with either this growing demand or the arsenal of resources that are available to operate in such a way that you are being ethical Uh, you're using best practices, and you aren't uh, subjecting yourself to potential legal jeopardy. Here's a 2018 news headline, and it's a story that I'm following. An Ohio atheist convicted of drug charges claims in court that a state judge and treatment provider forced him to participate in Alcoholics Anonymous, which he says is rooted in monotheistic spirituality. In 2016, James Linden was convicted of drug possession and theft for stealing five pills from an outpatient clinic where he was working as a pharmacist. He was also convicted of tampering with evidence after swallowing four of the five stolen pills when confronted by plainclothes security guards, according to court records. The judge in the Cuyahoga County Court of Common Pleas sentenced Linden to 30 days in an inpatient treatment substance abuse program and two years of probation. However, to successfully complete his treatment and probation, Linden claims he also was required to participate in Alcoholics Anonymous, which he said is entirely dependent on belief in a single God or higher power. Compelling any person to attend de facto religious services as a part of mandatory substance abuse treatment programs is a predictable and systemic violation of constitutional law, the lawsuit states. So you can weigh in however you want uh, on that uh, topic. I have a copy of his August 2, 2018 revised filing to the United States District Court of the Northern District of Ohio Eastern Division, and he and I talked over the phone. If you follow the Barry A. Hazel Jr. case, which happened a couple years earlier, a Ninth Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals mandated the state of California, his parole office, and West Care Treatment Center, where he was mandated to go, to compensate Hazel $1.9 million because they unlawfully violated his First Amendment rights, providing state services uh, free of having, you know, religious philosophy foist upon a citizen. Anyway, it's a First Amendment thing. I'm not a lawyer. (laughs) Okay, so... uh, With the timing of the new P86 AA pamphlet, The God Word, Agnostics and Atheists in AA, just released November 2018, help put the X back in Xmas. Okay, sorry. (laughs) I'm digressing a little bit. But it's a good time for any group, your group, my group, any district, area or on a national level to reach out to hospitals and institutions 
and demonstrate the viability of the AA option that ensures no one has to accept someone else's worldview nor deny their own. So let's talk more about that next week or next month or next time, <laughs> shall we? Okay, now for Lucy. I mentioned earlier I cross paths with Lucy in the music business. I cross paths with Lucy in the recovery community. Here's her story as recorded for IndyCan Radio to share with anyone who might find it hopeful and or informative. Let's play an acid test song too. And then if you want, visit rebelliondogspublishing.com, the rebellious radio page, for links to Michael's books, songs featured on this show, and any other links we might think you might find captivating. Of course, have your say. Twitter, Facebook, phone us, email news at rebelliondogspublishing.com. Thanks to Michael, and thanks in advance to Lucy. Shout out to Rob for saying, yes, I will, even before he had the details about Indie Week. And thanks to Indie Week for having the insight to talk about mental health, addiction, and to help end the stigma. We're all in this together, aren't we? Hi, this is Lucy DeSanto from Acid Test, and we are on Indie Can Radio at Indie Week 2018. Now, you uh, view this topic through your own very unique set of eyes because you have your own lived experience, which we're going to talk about in just a second here, and you also work in the addiction recovery field. Yeah, that's my day job. So, it's interesting how they, when you said they all come together, boy, do they all come together for me. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So how long have you been an addiction counselor? Three years through going back to school uh, after taking a hiatus for music in support of my own recovery. Right. So um, we can get to that yeah. part later. Uh, but in terms of it um, being going through the music industry and those experiences and as well having a member of our own band, Acid Test, pass away from the disease of addiction uh, really propelled me to... Hmm. Let's see. This is a purpose for me here. Uh, and and especially in trying to drive down that stigma because it is an illness like any other illness and should be regarded as such. Um, and having people, the stigma is what keeps people sick. And uh, having that, I'll do anything I can to, to bring those barriers down. In terms of getting on stage and playing music, I and I know today have anxiety issues, suffer from anxiety. And from a young age, I remember my first drink or drinking always kind of, ooh, relieve those butterflies in the stomach. Everything seemed okay. So I kind of used that self medicating when I needed it. Um, not knowing anything about alcoholism. Alcoholism to me was uh, that guy on the park bench with the paper bag. Didn't know it affected all these kind of real high-functioning people. So yeah, it worked. I got on stage, always needed a couple glasses of wine to get on stage, and it, it was fine. Of course, the accessibility when you're in the music industry, you have alcohol given to you before the show for free after the show for free from club to club city to city you you walk in the afternoon for soundcheck in a bar and you're greeted with the bartender and it just goes along with the territory so it, it almost not even uh, on purpose it was just accessible and just there part became part of my daily life not really really realizing there was a problem and I can go back to some of my like my parents relatives oh it's because of the music industry that you got into this pro that this mm -hmm. problem and honestly I believe this would have affected me in any industry but I'm um, so happened that it was accessible and it really hit me when we stopped touring interesting enough when we stopped the touring and something was kind of missing from my life and I remembered oh yeah that's right well drinking is always putting me in a better mood so I started doing it more occasionally um, middle of the afternoon, why not go to get a bottle of wine? Definitely a fact, this disease is progressive. Yes, mm -hmm. I might have 
been okay with two glasses of wine before a show once or twice a week and now it's become daily and that was not my plan i can't explain what happened there's this that invisible line you'll hear about in recovery that we cross i don't know when that happened yeah but it did happen more drinking more drugs yes got into other substances that kind of fueled the drinking uh that goes along with the territory it's just available nowadays i from the clients i am involved with um most of them are it's not just one it's like it's either it's alcohol and some other thing going on substance it's just the accessibility of that but at the time it just seemed like you're an artist part of this illness is justification it's like well wait a minute you know like Jim Morrison and Jimi Hendrix they Mm -hmm. did their best work and performances when they were like affected and altered and etc and I can and I really believe that and that was just another reason to keep using and drinking uh, for me and justifying that well I'm an artist Um, yet um, I know many artists who they don't even like take it or leave it kind of thing but Mm -hmm. for me it was like well yeah so yes the justification was there Mm -hmm. Uh, my bottom was when uh, what I looked forward to every day was not getting up and doing what I like to do or see who I like to see or be part of a family or a relationship of any kind. It was, do I have enough today? Uh, what time does the liquor store open? Who can I get a hold of to get me other things I need? That was my priority every day. Still functioning, managing to work, managing to show up until I wasn't managing to show right. up. Until I would rather, well, I sorry, mom, missed Christmas dinner. I I was and because I passed out on the couch and as all us addicts and alcoholics we we don't mean to be the blackout drinker or the mm-hmm. not showing up for days but it started happening um and I started losing friends and relationships and family were becoming more distant and frankly it's, it's the scary part is that I didn't care because I had my my alcohol substances and um, pretty depressed on uh, living a life of that. I somehow I had this awakening. You call it a moment of clarity. Is this my life? I saw the vision of me doing this daily, every day, and it hit me that wow, I think I have some other purpose in this world other than to do this. And it wasn't easy. It didn't happen right away. That oh, Lucy got clean and sober. I took a couple of treatment centers, and I would say more of a what it really took was a willingness to accept, not only admit, but accept that, yeah, I have this illness. Alcohol affects me and other substances affect me, like peanuts would affect another person who has an allergy or a diabetic who needs his medication. Um, I don't look at it as any better or worse than those things. I, I That's the way I accept it. And boy, has that helped me. I basically do what I need to do medication-wise, which for me is all the things that go along with living a healthy uh, lifestyle. Where was the band at this point? Had uh, had Acid Test gone on hiatus or well, broken up at this point? Acid or? Test was signed to uh, Warner, uh, to Sire Warner in the U.S. And that was a one record deal. We did a couple years of touring, released the record, things were great until they weren't great and until we didn't meet the expectations and we weren't on the label anymore um that hit the band members pretty hard we were all very young all pretty much like in and around 20 years old and um we thought well and a couple of us just decided nah we're moving on uh i myself and steve fall guitarist in the band went on to form a couple of other bands uh on another one called interstate so yes, I was still I had my my finger in the music uh, industry. The drinking and using was progressing through yeah. those times. Yeah. And then when you finally got uh, clean and sober, right. did you think that that was it for music? That that was going to be one of the sacrifices that you just weren't going to be able to do that? And well, I did. Um, I did have a time where I needed to take a break from music, even from listening to music. It was for me, as they call uh, these temptations in recovery, a, a big trigger, mm-hmm. uh, just because of the association that went along with it for years upon years. And even seeing live music was in a bar, I needed to just stay away for a little while uh, from all that stuff. Um, I focused on my own recovery, developing new skills, and that's when I went back to school and devoted all that energy into uh, studying. I have a honors BA in psychology. Mm-hmm and uh, post-grad in addiction mental health and I, I put all my effort there until 2012 when we got news that Mike our DJ just right in the in acid test passed away and that kind of brought us together the rest of the band members of acid test and 
we started communicating. Steve and Adam started writing uh, via Dropbox. When I found out about that, I'm like, wait a minute, what about me? Hey, <laughs> hello, could I hear these ideas? So we started writing uh, online, long distance, and wrote a record. Just Right has something to do with uh, your yes. dearly departed. Yeah, Mike Harlan went by, AKA DJ Just Right, and this was, uh, he was the catalyst to, to kind of get us together and do this. and. To be honest, he was the one member who always tried and was pressing to get us back together. Yeah. So we kind of did this post And he did bring you back together. And he did. So yeah. we know Mike is like, you know, watching. We had his mom at our record release, and mm -hmm. it was amazing to have that her there um, for for um, Just Right. And yeah, it's it's just been quite a ride, and and it's almost like getting back together with the, it was almost like we never stopped playing together. That chemistry, interesting how that is. It's mm -hmm. there's something magical in music. Did you have any fear that you couldn't perform, you couldn't sing sober? Oh yeah, uh, oh yeah. <laughs> First show we did was um, it was just a surprise show we did at Cherry Colas in Toronto, and it wasn't even the sh it was more the rehearsal. It was like. Whoa, because the rehearsals became uh, beer in the fridge, et cetera, et cetera, and, and um, at the end. And it was just, whoa, like just the rehearsing and then break time. And then it's like, yeah, some of the other guys did have a beer or go out for a beer later. And it was, and the anxiety of there's a show coming up. I thought about it and I went, wow, I can actually say, yeah, I'm thinking about it, but I don't, I don't need that. And mm -hmm. I'm choosing not to have that. And yeah, I, I got through it. And as, once you do get through it the first time with success and you kind of get that, wow, I did this self-efficacy and I can do this again. So mm -hmm. kind of broke the ice with that first show. I was there. It was great. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah that's you right. looked absolutely natural up there on stage oh, fronting thanks, a band again. So now you work in addiction and treatment and uh, your treatment center deals with you know, some of the top musicians, uh, some of the top people in uh, white coat professions, mm -hmm. people who fly our airplanes and work in our military, and uh, people who find themselves uh, homeless, mm -hmm. right? It, you deal with it all, right? It does not discriminate, and yes, we do all um, social, uh, as all aspects of society. And um, I love what I do, mm -hmm. uh, absolutely. I Just as much as I love to play music, I don't see why you can't do both. I, one thing I learned about myself, I need to keep myself occupied and busy and that I thrive on that. So, yeah. uh, and giving back every day is a day of going in and, see, and seeing like, wow, somebody may have gotten some message today that benefited their life. That is like, for me, success every day. Yeah, and eventually you find, oh, you know, that that person is in the music business and oh, they're yeah. in recovery and, and that band, they're all in recovery. And, yeah, it's and kind of a cool club, you actually. The, you weren't the it's only like, one, right? It's, yeah. it, that's the, uh, there's different support groups around for all addictions and it's mm -hmm. kind of cool knowing, knowing that so-and-so from that actor and that prime minister and that president and that uh, actress, uh, musicians, of course, is one of us, as we call it, and yeah. it's kind of cool. It's this neat club, and it's kind of the cool thing is to be in recovery. I hope, I, I hope it is anyway. I woke up turning blue from thinking about you. Open door and creep today. I took a look around, seems like no one's in town, and whoever has nothing to say. So I throw my hat into the rain.
and hand down everything and tell a tale about about yesterday.